off. Should we get started? Let's go. Let's let's crack on. It's okay. a beautiful day in London. It's also a, a beautiful day here in San Diego. Why do we even label vertical? Why don't we lateralize it and say transformation? They buy things that they don't need. They buy things to impress people that they don't even like. You do have to change the culture. The culture in the organization is the most important. And I've got to say, it comes from the top. It's as if reality is splintering into multiple shards. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Straight Talk Live. That's right, this is our year anniversary show. And that's a fantastic montage put together by Cam, one of our incredible team members um, who helps, uh, basically is the video and graphics wizard behind the scenes. Along with Denise, we wanna do a special shout out to Denise, uh, who's really the brains of the operation of holding this whole thing together and keeping Af and I uh, on point. <laughs> so thank you, Denise. Um, also want to thank Nav, who's our youth correspondent, who's out there helping us stay current with uh, Instagram and all the latest uh, with the pulse of the next generations. Uh, and also want to thank a couple other people who've been on the team this whole year in the background uh, in terms of um, marketing strategy and sponsorship uh, relationships. So thank you, Sapna and Daniel as well. And I really need to thank my co-host, Af Maholtra, who is crazy enough to say, hey, Rick, what if we do this together? What if we start this podcast during COVID when we're so not satisfied with the conversations that are happening? We need a, why, don't we, why don't we host a platform that does that? And that's how this whole thing was birthed exactly a year ago today. So Af, anything that you wanna say? I'm just grateful for the opportunity. And uh, uh, it's amazing when you put your mind to something together and um, conceive it and then you start believing in the fact that it can happen and then voila it uh, materializes and i think uh, we are the change each of us are the change we want in this world and i'm uh, just grateful to everyone who's supported us on this journey all of our straight talkers and uh, all of these wonderful guests we've had to date some of the, the greatest minds on the planet have have um you know blessed us with their time and, and their wisdom and today is momentous because it's Earth Day. It's our anniversary, it's our birthday. And of course we have the first time we're doing a panel. We usually go one-on-one, -on -one, max one-on-two, um, or two-on-one, should I say, on two-on-two. We have a whole panel of incredible people and we are um, very excited about the show today. We're going to describe what, what it's about and uh, Rick, you're, gonna, you're going to introduce each one of these guests. Uh, all I want to say really is uh, keep believing in, in the mission that you uh, are destined to, to create and execute on. And I was inspired by, I was you know, gifted or, or lucky enough to do some briefing calls with some of the, the guests today. And I have to tell you, I won't name who they are, but uh, you, in, you get inspired yourself when you're on this panel and when you're listening in. But I was truly inspired, I had goosebumps. I was thinking, wow, um, how are these young people making such a huge impact? And I just had, um, I felt good about the future. Being a father myself, you know, with two very young children, I felt hopeful. And um, thank you for, for, for doing that. So, Rick, balls back to you, buddy. Cricket balls back to you. Um, go do what you need to do. So, let's go. Okay. So once again, very excited for this show, and I want to thank each of you participants for being on the show today. Uh, and, and we wanted to highlight, of course, climate and our planet and our relationship to our planet. And um, if you think about it, once again, our show is really about human, digital, and social transformation. And I can't think of a better cause than paying better attention to our climate and the different, uh, how we need to shift our relationship, how we think about it, how we um, act how we respond to this moment. And time is ticking. It's not a joke. And so uh, we have, we're lucky to have and blessed to have some amazing leaders in the space, uh, next-gen leaders who are really doing the work 
whether it's the research, whether it's uh, being on the front lines, whether it's mobilizing youth and, and uh, groups and uh, the latest in technologies. So we're going to cover as much of that today as we can. Uh, as always, please send in your questions and we'll try to get those answered as well. But first, let's just go around and introduce who's in the room. Uh, Flavio, why don't we start with you? Um, maybe just about a minute or so. We'd love to hear from each of you uh, who you are, where are you coming from, and what's your main passion right now in terms of climate change and where's your focus? All right. Thank you so much, Rick. Thank you so much, Af. Absolute pleasure to be here with these lovely panelists. I will share your enthusiasm as we are ready to go and we are ready to make a difference. I'm Flavio. I'm a research strategist at IBM Research. We're working to discover new materials to capture carbon from the atmosphere. I also co-founded Global Shapers Manchester. We are part of the Global Shapers community, young people united in change making. It's about 15 of us who work on doing local projects, small local projects in our communities, such as, for example, installing benches, which encourage people to have more conversations. I'm also doing sort of various things, various projects, kind of under the theme of getting people together around the world for action. Uh, one of the great things recently that I'm excited about is building a spoken word poem to talk about and to inspire action in climate change. Climategeneration.xyz is the website. So a multitude, but in the themes of research and getting people together for impact. Thank you so much and pleasure to be here. Thank you, Flavio. Uh, let's go from Manchester to Portland area. How about Luna, if you want to go next? Yeah, of course. Hi, everyone. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be here. Um, yeah, I mean, we need so many um, opportunities like this to showcase youth voices. So um, it's really valuable to have this opportunity today. Um, my name is Luna Abadia. I use she, her pronouns, and I live in Portland, Oregon, the United States. Um, I'm 16 years old. And I guess I'll start a little bit talking about my own climate journey. So my climate activism is really rooted in my passion and love for nature. Um, growing up in the Pacific Northwest, I think that really shaped my experience. You know, we have so much access to forest. Um, but I realized as I grew up that not everyone has this access to nature. Um, and not everyone has this access to clean air. And so I began my first steps towards climate activism um, when I was 12. And I think that really showed me how much youth voices can actually make a different difference. Um, we were advocating for climate policy and we were able to successfully pass um, a climate bill. And that showed me like, we do have um, the ability to make a difference. Mm. Um, and so I studied abroad in Japan a few years ago. And I think that's when my passion really um, kickstarted and, and began to take me somewhere. Um, I entered a Japanese speech contest and spoke about the importance of taking action on climate change. Um, and I was able to win the regional prefectural levels um, and become a national finalist and, and spread my, my passion to a lot of people um, in another country, in another language. And so, um, that then um, brought me coming home to the US to feel like I need to, to do something else, to do something bigger. Um, and so I founded the Effective Climate Action Project. Um, we're a youth climate organization. We're focused on um, promoting effective and systemic solutions to climate change um, by engaging youth leaders and running these interactive workshops called climate simulations. Um, and so all of this has um, really brought me to, to see how much um, impact can be created, I think, by youth like us. Um, the, the great thing about youth is that we have a lot of passion. We don't have the power, um, but we do have a vision. And so that's incredibly important um, in this climate fight. So thank you. Wonderful. Wow. Thank you so much, Luna. Really impressive. Um, Beth, let's go over to you next. Thank you so much for having me. Um, it is wonderful to be calling in from Vancouver Island on the west coast of Canada. But you're probably wondering, why does this girl have an English accent? Well, <laughs> I grew up in the UK. Um, I'm English Canadian. I'm lucky enough to be a, a dual citizen, but I know that comes with lots of responsibility too. Um, it was wonderful to hear Luna before me because I was on a very similar route 
and I would I would say actually you're very much more accomplished than I was at your age but um my my journey did start when I was 13 I became involved with the UN and the MDGs which is the Millennium Development Goals um founding my own enterprise mostly around actually mental health that's how it started for me um, I could see a lot of issues in my society and I, I didn't really know how to make a difference and entrepreneurship was really the way that I, I channeled um, that passion and then that grew I started working with the SDGs when they were launched and focusing on climate action SDG 13 uh, specifically with the indicator 13.3 which is about the human capacity to act on climate change and as we know human capacity is a lot about education and communication I believe that there's a really big uh, communication gap with the climate crisis and that's why um, we're having these conversations and that's why um, we need to allow for space and platforms to do so. So I, um, through that, uh, founded my own project through the Sustainable Development Solutions Network, which is a, a UN network progressing the SDGs and the, the climate agreements. And um, through that found that yeah, we're, we're not really communicating in the right way and uh, also did research on um, uh, a form of work which is called community-based social marketing. Um, how is it that we're, we can better communicate to the masses through not a fear-based approach, but like a, um, a positive reinforcement approach where we can talk about uh, solutions and coming together and collaboration, which I really think is important. Um, and now I actually am still in the UN system um, it might be of interest to some people on the panel here, but um, I'm part of the United Nations Major Group for Children and Youth, which uh, is a, a major group of the UN, which is under Agenda 21 of the UN, uh, where the UN has um, signed on to um, provide a space for youth to be advocates and uh, for policy within many different agencies. So we do have a youth constituency for UNFCCC. We allow for space for youth to have a say on different issues. And uh, that's my, my current work uh, to get civil society and youth into policy advocacy internationally. Um, but yeah, uh, last year I was awarded Corporate Knights 30 Under 30 for um, Canada as the sustainability leader and also Starfish Canada's 25 Under 25 environmentalists. And my journey is now switching more to environmental communication through documentary film and digital communication. So um, it's a pleasure to be here and I can't wait for this conversation. Wonderful, thank you so much, Beth. Um, loving the diversity that's here. Um, let's go to Vivek, let's go to you next. We'd love to hear from you. Right, hello everyone. First of all, thanks to Af and Rick for inviting me on this panel. And I have to say so far from what I've heard so far from the other panelists, it's such a pleasure to be here with, again, like you mentioned, such a diverse group of people. Um, and actually hinging on to what Flavio does, so I'm currently doing my PhD. Uh, I'm based in Cambridge at the moment in chemistry. Uh, and whilst Flavio is working on looking at materials that capture CO2, which is actually really great to hear, uh, what I'm working on in my lab is actually what can we do with that CO2 that people are capturing. And so in my lab, what we're, take, what we're trying to do is uh, take the CO2 that can be captured and actually convert that back into fuels so that they can be readily reused as sustainable fuels. Uh, and a way in which we could obviously uh, see this is basically a way of closing the carbon cycle where for CO2 that's released and recaptured, you turn it back into fuel. And it's a way of trying to close this carbon cycle um, but with regards to my passions, aside from obviously trying to create more sustainable fuels, um, I recently, luckily during my time here, worked uh, on an agritech startup that I co-founded with one of my co-founders in chemistry as well. Uh, and we actually found that um, farming is one of our passions, both of us, we both sort of bonded over it. And we found that we both uh, sort of, there was a need to try and improve productivity in farming, but also the methods in which uh, farming is actually being carried out in developing economies, uh, such as India. Uh, and so what we've created is, or what we're still creating, is a low-cost sensor that can be embedded into the soil, and it can monitor the soil health, essentially. Uh, but more in particular, what we're looking at is the microbes in the soil. Uh, and essentially, there are microbes that essentially do what fertilizers do. In fact, it actually mm. takes nitrogen from the atmosphere and converts wow. this nitrogen back into ammonia or back into fuel itself. But obviously, a lot of farmers just use synthetic fuel, especially in developing economies, because it seems just a magic powder that can make your plants grow quicker. Uh, but what we want to do is try and optimize the soil health by optimizing the microbial activity within the soil. And we want to try and bring the soil back to what it was before synthetic fertilizers were used and try and hopefully regain some of the composure that these microbes have and try and regain long-term sustainable soil health for future global security, food security, as well as trying to limit CO2 emissions, which comes from the process of making synthetic fertilizers in the first place. And yeah, that's pretty much a brief intro. 
Amazing. We'll have, we'll have loads of questions for you later, for sure. Amazing. Thank you, Vivek. Really inspiring. Laura, we'd love to hear from you. Yes, thank you, first of all, to Rick and Af, obviously. Um, and yeah, so I'm Laura. I'm from Belgium originally, but I live in the Netherlands. Um, I am the chair for my sustainability council at school. That's probably also where my passion started. Um, so what we try and do is just in the school we we uh, go to is to just yeah make the school more sustainable and raise awareness. Um, then also as part of a school project, I wrote a book called If Nature Had a Voice. Uh, it's quite a short book and it's, um, for me, it wasn't really about the end product, but more about the journey because it's kind of about a girl who is talking to like a tree um, or which is supposed to be a metaphor for nature. Um, and yeah, kind of learning about climate change and the solutions and also a lot of other things we'll be discussing uh, later. Um, and so, yeah, as I was writing, I had these same questions myself um, and yeah, by writing it, then I kind of found the answers to it. Um, and now I've also started with um, my dad's new foundation. We've um, started this project called Our Future, which is bringing 10 girls from different, from all over the world together. And Luna's one of them um, to um, kind of work together on a project about climate, anything we want um, and get some personal mastery coaching. Obviously that's um, quite valuable, I think as uh, still teenagers to, um, yeah, to kind of know what is my place, uh, who would do, who am I, and also how can I um, not feel that hopeless in regards to climate change? Um, and then also I am was invited by Darcy Winslow, who is the co-founder um, of um, Academy for Systems Change. And um, I'm going on an expedition to Antarctica, uh, which is in November. Um, I'm really excited about that. And that's also um, about yeah, climate change really focused on workshops and how I can make a difference. So in oh. the future, I'm really hoping to, um, yeah, do my part and also kind of become a female leader to really move towards this, um, yeah, sustainable revolu revolution. So mm. thank you. Wow. I'm so inspired and honored to have you all on the call, truly. So um, it just gives me hope for the next generation. So like, we need this. So thank you all for being here. Uh, let's dive right in. So um, our first question is, you know, there's so much focus on this conversation around getting to net zero. And that's the metric everyone's focusing on right now. More and more, it's in the consciousness of the world, it seems like, even the news cycles. So my question to you first is, is it actually, is it too late for net zero? Did we miss the boat? Um, and are we, what are we missing if we only focus on carbon emissions and that one metric? Is there things that we're, we're also missing in that conversation? Uh, Flavio, we'll start with you. We'll go to you and Beth to start off with. Sure. And if I may, I'd like to flip the question because as a scientist and as an innovator, rather than thinking, is it too late? Mm -hmm. I'd like to think about what do we need to do for it not to be too late? Mm. Because being too late depends on what we do in the next 10 years, in the next 15 years, in the next 20 years. So before the podcast, I actually thought a little bit what it would take. And let's just say we take the example of solar panels. There's a great book by Chris Goodall uh, on what it would take to decarbonize the UK. And there are a few other plans as well. For us to decarbonize the UK, uh, which is where I'm based, we need to expand the amount of solar panels, say, just one thing. There's many things we need to do, but let's just take solar panels, right? We need to expand the number of solar panels that we install, uh, we have running by 20x, by 20 times. If we want to do this by 2050, we have to double the amount of solar panels we have installed in the UK every seven years. That's growth of 10% every year. That's happening like solar panels are growing relatively quickly. I think they're about at 20% globally, a little bit slower in the UK. Um, our world and data has a very good data set on how fast those are installed. But at least this gives us a number, This, because 2050 or 2030 is very far away. But if we think about what we need to have in 2050, we can at least know what we need to build every single year by then. Every seven years, I have to double amount of solar panels and so on. That There's like a laundry list of things we need to do. And those are things we need to do now. 
And as an innovator, I also need to look at what technologies, what options to give people in 10 years time. Like this, the job of a technologist, the job of an innovator is to give people options. And so that's why I'm researching some of some problems such as materials that people will need in the future, maybe in five, 10 years in order to help decarbonize. So we need to build quickly now. And we also need to give people even more options for the future. This is how I would answer the question. I don't think it's too late, but for me to be able to answer the question, I also need to know what I need to do and what we all need to do for it not to be too late. Mm. Well said. It's a good approach. It's a good well approach. said. Beth, anything you want to add to that? Yeah, I uh, I really value your approach. Thank you so much, Fabio, from that. I'm gonna I'm gonna take it more of like an international politics approach, and then a little bit from my research side and in an adaptation. So it's not too late, but there must be more international momentum. So unfortunately, a lot of what the UN does is not legally binding. So governments can really do whatever they want to do, and unfortunately, in the international relations realm. It is pretty discouraging because one country does one thing and everyone else follows. And so we've seen that everybody is taking a very conservative approach towards the climate crisis and there needs to be more decisive action. But in order that, for that to happen, we have to see one country doing it or at least maybe five and then be in good relations to one another. I live in, in Canada. We are a fossil fuel creation <laughs> source. Like we are a hotspot. And so unfortunately our government doesn't see um the benefit of transitioning as radically as we're meant to um ipcc put out some pr predictions and we're actually a decade ahead um in terms of our warming so by uh 2000 uh so yeah currently we are like five to seven years ahead of what's going on um sorry no, no. uh that makes sense. That doesn't make sense. <laughs> um, we're a decade ahead of the predictions, pretty much. And so the, the areas that we can look at with that and, and how to make sure that we can get to net zero is through financing and is through global governments. And so those are like those the massive issues and where the solutions can come from. And another thing that I wanted to mention that um, I always see coming up into this space as well is adaptation. We talk a lot about mitigation. We talk a lot about what we have to do and to stop um, and to you know um, stop the train moving. But while we're doing that, adaptation is absolutely fundamental. Mm -hmm. And so in, in my research with social marketing and community-based social marketing, um, we found that unfortunately, policymakers aren't communicating about the effects that are happening now as well. So in Canada, flooding, flood risk is our biggest risk. And people don't really understand that that's a climate risk. It's not being communicated in the correct way. And we're devastating ecosystems. So it's almost too late to adapt. So yes, we can maybe get to net zero in 2050, but what is the devastating effects? Because even 1.5 um, degrees warming still affects our current ecosystems and we will not have the same uh, food sources or the same livelihoods even at that rate so we're talking we have to shift our talking away from mitigation and be talking about adaptation um, because that is really really a main place for focus right now can i just come in great it's a great start to the conversation for both of you actually and for the wider panel so uh, just touching on Beth's point around, and, and Flavia's point around, you talked about a nation. In this case, it was the UK. And then Beth, you talked about international relations or geopolitics to some extent. If you think about this net zero, um, the ambitions that have been set out, which is the communication that we've all received at large, at mass, at mass level. That's what we think it is. We think climate change and carbon neutrality and net zero is what it is all about and of course everything in the middle seems to have just totally got lost mother nature is gone um if nature had a voice and it does uh law and you can talk to trees and 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 you have whales and you have uh, sea life and and all of that good stuff that seems to have sort of almost been forgotten and so i like the adaptation um angle question for both of you and then for others too is um is everyone behaving nicely um so i'll explain what i mean for change to happen at scale it's not just um it's not sufficient for one country to lead the charge um even though it may be the richest country or developed country as they say 
all countries need to play their part. But the argument from, for some of the developing countries is, well, why should we, the United States of America or Britain or Europe, uh, we just came into the gig now. Well, you've been, you've been screwing the environment for many years. We should have had a much lower level of accountability and responsibility or liability. How do you, um, from the point of view of the next generation, which is what many of you are, how do you respond to that? Uh, maybe, Beth, you start because um, you, you had that point and then Flavio and then the rest. I think a really big thing to start to speak about as well is environmental racism uh, within this conversation and also how we're, again, shifting our narrative towards responsibility. When we look at climate emissions, the biggest polluters are Western societies. And unfortunately, where everything is embedded in capitalism, everything is embedded in, I really truly believe our heart is in the wrong place. So we really have to shift that responsibility because unfortunately, Western societies are contributing to the climate crisis the most out of anyone, but we are not also feeling the effects. So I'm actually working on a project called the Youth Climate Report. Um, it's part of some of my documentary film work. Um, and it's trying to translate the impacts of the climate crisis to global policymakers through um, through COP. So this this main report is a crowdsourced video um, mm. report that gets youth to uh, showcase the climate impacts in their societies. And I think it's it's important that we're putting we're putting this in front of policymakers so that we're not just having conversations about. Uh, again mitigation but the fact is that the global the global south are experiencing these effects right now and they have no financing and no support from 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 the north so um it's very unfortunate and it makes me unfortunately quite feel quite defeated um but yeah th that would be my my take on it is that um we have to step up to the plate in in both aspects and, and someone just came in, their questions coming in, um, and I, I want to tackle them because we won't get time at the end. But I think uh, someone came in and said, Beth, you, I think you've missed the point, or with due respect, you haven't talked about change. My assumption is adaption or adaptation is uh, the, un the underbelly is change, right? So you, if you're adapting to a situation, you're saying that people need to change and ch we're resistant to change as, as human beings. So I, I sense that's part of your, your um, talk track. Is that right? Oh, totally. Yeah, yeah. that's, that's, it's, it, I guess I just don't mention it because I just assume, but like, there's totally changes needed. Yeah, that's absolutely fundamental. Thank you for Understood. Anyone else want to jump in? Yeah, Any, yeah anyone else? The... Anyone else? Vivek. With, um, so with regards to, I guess, uh, policy changes that are needed, and I guess this is going to look more towards Beth, but um, so for example, um, so policies such as, I guess, the simplest one I can think of is, um, you know, fuel tax or raising the price of fuel. Uh, in certain economies of certain countries in order to try and lower the demand for fuel. And whilst this has been done in the past, I think the most recent one I can think of is Chile. Um, or, uh, there was another one in France, for example, where it led to a, a rise in protests. And it seems like the, the general public doesn't want the fuel prices to rise. And therefore, it, sort of, it sets back what the policies are able, what the policies are able to, I guess, achieve in terms of trying to lower the demand and use of things like fuel. Um, but I guess uh, with regards to how, I guess, developing economies are acting in terms of their policies, um, one thing I've read into is that um, it seems like the population in developing economies have such a lack of trust in their government to not believe that the, the taxes that obviously the government would make from increasing the fuel tax, for example, uh, they don't believe that that would actually go back into, I guess, society itself. And that in these systems, there are a lot of leakages everywhere where, I guess, governments, uh, I guess there's a lot of bribing and leakages of these tax revenues that might come out. Um, uh, did, do you know if there's, uh, I guess, more of a sentiment in developing economies to actually try and, uh, you know, I guess, more wholeheartedly make sure that this tax revenue for the greater good of the earth is actually going to be used in the right way? Uh, or do you reckon that's sort of a moot point that isn't actually focused on enough as well at this point? Well, I think that's a good question. Um, anyone want to tackle that? Or if you have a viewpoint on it in terms of the east to the west, because this is an interesting debate generally. If not, we're going to come back to it. Um, Flavio, do tell me what you think, though, about the geopolitical piece, um, just for a moment. One of the things that I've been thinking a lot recently is how do we scale collaboration across the societal stack? 
and I'll explain, right? Society has multiple levels from individuals to groups of individuals to organizations, families, uh, all the way to societies, nations, all the way to supranational organizations such as the United Nations, right? And I think the, the internet has given us a superpower. I, I tend to be optimistic. So I, I use the optimistic lens on that, right? It's given us a superpower to be able to connect. Like we are doing this now. We're connecting across multiple countries and talking that, through this in a collaborative manner where we can get our insights and kind of progress our knowledge forward. We've seen this happening during COVID, right? Scientists got together, companies got together, people got together in order to fight this virus. Um, scientists got together, shared data at the speed of the internet in order to understand how the virus um, sort of spreads, understand the genetic code of virus. Sequencing in one part of the world went straight to another lab in another part of the world. Mm -hmm. So I'm like, this is a superpower. This is a global superpower. How can we scale this collaboration? Maybe countries won't collaborate now, but if we can start with individuals from those different countries and then scale it up to institutions, then, then eventually maybe we can scale it up to the country. Like very small example, it's, not, it's nothing big, right? But um, the spoken word poem that I'm working with, uh, that I'm working on, I'm working with a composer from New York, spoken word poet from Morocco, a video editor from Poland, we got together and we got this just done happening. Same here, right? We are in this conversation. So yeah, this is kind of my provocation to kind of everyone here and something that I'm really thinking about. Mm -hmm. At work as well, we work across boundaries. We have labs in San Francisco and we have scientists all the way to Tokyo who work on some of these problems because that's where the expertise is. And the internet allows expertise from Tokyo to flow directly to expertise in San Francisco and solve these kind of problems. Revolutions can happen when we all get together, right? Regardless of governments. And <laughs> one of the threads I'm picking up on that came through in an older episode we had was the power of story and the power of narrative. And that's really how we learn as human beings still. And so if our story is just about carbon emissions, which is important, and if we're leaving out you know, the coral reef and other important factors that we all need to be paying attention to in our ecosystem now, how have you seen anyone successfully shifting the narrative and being more inclusive of all of the impacts, not just carbon? Are you seeing any successful areas where that's happening out there? Luna, you I think, can um, like Laura, yeah. Oh, sorry. Luna, yeah, go for exactly. it, Laura. Go for it. Uh, for example, like like Greta, Greta Thunberg, um, she's not really specifically, I guess, really saying the specific solutions um maybe but she is really very clear in saying it's a crisis and that's also how we should be treating it and i think if people start realizing what that means as a crisis because like i still remember in um when i was very young we had the school project which was like an exhibition um and we had to choose one of the problems in the world and to me that was crazy because you either had to choose um like poverty um the coral reef um, deforestation and and then inequality, racism. There's so many problems, mm -hmm. and everyone puts climate change as one of them. But like the, like Prince Aya also said that in one of his videos, like we won't be able to. There's nothing to fight for if we don't have the earth. So I mean, I think everyone should be put climate change first because it is a crisis. And like Greta says, if your house is on fire, you don't think about you don't stay in the house and try and you know think about you you like act as a crisis you stand up and you make sure it the fire gets out directly um and that's i think just a shift in mindset that we need to see in so many more people because that's just what we need thank you yeah, i'd like to add on to that um storytelling is really impactful i think in climate change work like in communications work um because when we don't hear about the concrete effects of climate change, it can seem really far away, um, especially in these developed countries, um, as, as we say. Um, and, and that's what we try to do in my organization. So we um, run these workshops that are interactive climate simulations um, and people get together and they represent different nations. Um, so developed nations and developing nations um, and, and 
like we were talking about before, this question of how much is it the role of developing nations who will be facing the most impacts but have done um, or contributed the least to climate change? Like how much is it their own responsibility to tackle this issue? Um, that's a question that comes up in our workshops, you know, and youth have to struggle with this. Like um, it's, it's hard, but it's also, um, I think, clear that when we look at the, the graphs, developing nations are going to be passing um, developed nations with how much um, emissions they're creating and they're going to be developing um, and expanding. And so um, they do play an incredibly important role um, in this climate crisis in tackling this issue um, because we do need collaboration between all these countries, um, but also like they're not going to be, be able to do it by themselves. And we need um, support from other countries that can be finances, um, that can be mitigation and adaptation strategies. Um, but we do need people recognizing that um, th these are important players in the climate crisis and we need to be supporting their um, journey to actually make these fundamental changes um, in you know, energy sources and electrification and um, policy in all these different areas. Um, and, and then also just about this public communications of, of climate change thing that we've been talking about. Um, I think, and the question of like, if we only focus on carbon emissions, is it, what are we missing? You know, um, I think carbon emissions are such a key aspect of this climate system. Like without um, tackling the emissions that we're creating, we're not going to be able to draw down the temperature. Um, but it, it's also, there's so much more underneath. And I think sometimes talking about these abstract numbers and policies, net zero, um, it can make the general public feel really like, disconnected from climate change um, and climate action. And so I think it's important to recognize like the role that each of us actually play in this global system. Um, and this doesn't mean like stressing over one piece of paper um, recycled or feeling guilty over your existence as um, a human. Like that's what big oil companies and some politicians have been wanting us to think um, all along. But I think instead it's about focusing on the meaningful action that we can take um, and the targets that, um, the solutions that focus on systemic action as much as possible. That's brilliant. Um, let's actually shift to action. I'm going to change up the questions here. Um, so often, I think, as has been mentioned here, a lot of us can feel disempowered when it comes to something so big as the climate, because it literally takes the whole village to make this uh, change, right? And so I think there's ways we can all feel disempowered at times if we're isolated or if it's just our nation or our tribe or just us that might think differently than the rest of our family system, for example, or our community. And so let's start there. Um, and let, let's start with uh, Lore and Luna and Beth. Um, what can we do? How can people who are listening right now get involved and in, uh, take action, as you just said, um, on an individual, societal, and governmental level to come back to Flavio's stacking, as he talked about, let's start on an individual level. Like what are things that people can do? What are some things that you're doing? Uh, things that you're seeing people do, your colleagues? Yeah, I can um, maybe start. I think also that it's very important, first of all, at least for me, it was to first be conscious of your own impact on the environment because, mm. uh, and then also make those smaller changes. And um, those probably won't be the most effective solutions like showering shorter or becoming vegetarian um, but it's that consciousness of what am I using and being really sparing in okay which resources am I using what's actually necessary for yeah what I'm doing um, so I think that's a great start for anyone that's watching just uh, being very conscious about what you're doing um, but obviously as Luna also said and that's also what her organization is around um, we need to really strive for like effective action. And um, yeah, there's multiple things you can do. I think I'll pass over to Luna because she's kind of the expert on this. <laughs> yeah, of course. Um, so I truly believe that each of us as an individual has a way in which we can partake in climate action. And I think like Laura said, starting with realizing your own pet impact is a great place to start. Um, I think the next step is um, reflecting on your own passions and your own interests and your own um, the things that you can add to this because the great thing about climate change is that there's so many ways to tackle it. Um, there's so many niches that we can go into um, and that can be science or policy or 
um, communications or education, like there really is, um, like everyone can come together on this issue and everyone needs to um, find that way in which they can connect their current work to climate change. Um, and so I think when we're talking about systemic solutions, that's, that's things um, like leveraging our power as a consumer to um, tell companies that we don't wanna buy their plastic um, instead of compared to um, going to a beach and picking up plastic. Like that's picking up the actual pieces of the problem instead of tackling it from the source, which is the creators, the, the companies. Um, and, I, and then I think it's also about like replacing. Replacing is really important um, as individuals in climate action. So seeing like what, what changes can we make to our current lifestyle that is going to leave an impact. So when you're for your next vehicle, like buying an electric car, making that change um, is really important because that car is going to be driving on the road for so many years. Um, I think it's also about education, like choosing what path you want to go down um, and, and how we can implement more climate change into curriculums, because that's going to be a many year process and it's going to have an impact on, you know, so many generations. Um, but the truth is we need action right now. Like we need to be as urgent as possible. And so while it's also creating like these long-term systemic changes, it's also about like using your voice um, and, and voting and advocating to be, um, to call for these policies that are going to make change immediately. Um, and, and that like all these people, um, all of you have been mentioning, like starting with that laundry list um, of what is our first action? We have this goal of net zero, for example, how are you going to break that up into years? Um, because it's not just choosing a goal and saying, yes, net zero by 2050. Um, it's actually saying, okay, well, next year we have to start doing this and then the following year this. Um, because if we don't, it just becomes a number and it just becomes a goal um, or a public relations um, thing versus a, a true solution. Mm -hmm. there's, a there's a piece around hearts and minds connectivity here, right? Um, because, I mean, take a corporate example, when you, in, in the corporation, when you throw goals at people, numbers, essentially, um, a small minority probably buy into them, but the rest are disenfranchised. But it's never talked about, of course, which is the big problem in corporate culture today. The same thing applies to this carbon neutral uh, metric. So tell us a little bit about maybe um, Beth and, and Law and the rest can tackle this. How do we actually, let's think about the education process. Let's just break it down, okay? So pick an individual, me, for now, okay? I'm, I'm, I live in London, in my house. And uh, I try and be as responsible as possible. My wife disagrees. She's like, you're not environmentally friendly at all. Look, you've got that light on in the background and you've got this and you've got that. So, and I feel guilty sometimes and I think, oh my God, I mean, I've got, I've got to do something about this. Um, change starts with, with the person and at home. So the problem I have, and I'm, I'm just trying to relate to some of the audience members is maybe I don't understand what impact I can make in the entire chain of events um, because what's been sold to me is this big story on Netflix and other places of the world collapsing in 20, 30, 50, 40 years, whatever it may be. Talk us through how it happened for you. I, I know you, and you know, many of you are much younger than at least Rick and I on this call. Um, I think it's safe to say they all are. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's what just call a spade a spade here. Let's call a spade a spade. <laughs> uh, we're the geriatrics in the call, okay? Um, how did you so talk us through the the formula or recipe? How do we do the hearts and minds piece here at a granular level? Yes, go ahead. Um, I think that's a wonderful question. I would like to go back to the previous question first because I. Get this question we get questions as climate activists all the time about what is it that we can do i'm sure everybody here has had that and i to be honest i'm a little bit fed up with that question and that's not your fault that's society's fault we're being told that we have to make the difference and it's our responsibility but let me tell you it's not our responsibility this whole time this has been on corporations and global governments and it's their fault it's not our fault and so we can't necessarily be turning inwards and being like okay how can i live my my life better how can i drive a better car that sh that that almost creates a culture that we we are truly responsible and that affects our mental health and i think that we really have to shift things here and for me i've never been involved in policy 
I've been, I did business. Like I was always in the business realm, environment and business was my degree. And when I was at university, I felt like nobody was listening to the data. Nobody was understanding what was going on. So I uh, applied to be part of the city of Waterloo um, sustainability advisory committee. And I wrote a report to the council communicating with them about what climate change is about and why it is that we shouldn't enact a climate emergency. And it was surprising. The people there didn't even know the data that, you know, these are municipal leaders and they had no idea about mm. how to communicate or what to do. And but those are the people that should know it. Those are the people that are responsible for us in our cities. So why is it that they don't know? And so, yes, I do think it is a way in a way we are responsible to educate those people um, because civil society actually has most of the knowledge like look at Luna, like you, you have so much incredible knowledge and momentum. It's just about where you're put, where is it that we can put the spotlight on you or get people to listen to you, which is why I think my work with the UN is so important and, and why tokenism is also an issue too. Like we have to be listening to the data and the facts and sometimes that's coming from society. Um, so I just, I just wanted to say that here, like that's something that's really important. Yeah. If you want to make a difference in your city, Go to your MP or go to your municipality and speak to them. Do not be scared to do that. I was terrified to do that and I didn't realize how much change I could make. Mm. And, and I was recognized for that because mm. not a lot of people speak up. So look into uh, Youth Climate Lab. They now have an infiltration manual. They talk about how is it that you can get in front of your policymakers and enact a climate emergency. And then, sorry to your other question about communicating in, to the general public. Again, shifting that narrative that actually it's not just our fault. Um, and the first point of call, I would say, would be to go to political leaders. Um, and then we also have to tell stories in, in the way that relates to some, someone's lives. So with this communication project I had with SDSN, we created four personas of the average people that just are in society right now. And we found that persona Ds were the ones that were uneducated, um, they, they, they weren't interested in the climate crisis, they had no experience, they don't volunteer, and we found that actually they were most interested in economic issues, and so if we were to better communicate about the economic uh, crisis of climate, um, we were able to shift narratives. So it's, it really is about changing that mindset but getting into the mind of the person that you're communicating with and whether that's a policymaker, you need to give them data and facts and solutions or it's the general public and you need to talk about hey you can't put food on your table if you don't do this um that's that's where the change starts sorry for my 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 passion <laughs> well actually i'm not going to apologize for that but good i'm glad you didn't apologize for that never apologize for passion come on it's hard to find um uh, Vivek, I'm going to bring Vivek in and then, and then others can uh, chime in too. Uh, Vivek, you, you've got a startup. Uh, so you've been, uh, you've been very humble there, but you built a startup out of Cambridge University while you're doing your PhD and you briefly talked about what it does. Uh, we're going to sort of touch on agriculture briefly because there are many industries that are back to the points made earlier. Many in industries are culpable and responsible and liable. Right. Um, and so one of those that needs transformation is agriculture uh, because of the food we eat. And uh, some of the food we eat is wonderful and, and organic and other parts of the world. It's not so organic. So talk us through your view on um, what we've just discussed, uh, the hearts and minds and also the education around food, because we're all passionate about good food and organic food. And many people want to eat less meat or become vegetarian or vegan or whatever it may be. Uh, why why did you do what you did because it's a solution it's a solution that i think you're trying to build or get invested uh, in talk us through that briefly yeah um well it's quite interesting because um the point that was touched on earlier is are we missing something when we just focus on carbon emissions as a way of trying to you know bring the world to a more sustainable point um and actually the the field that we're working in in terms of agriculture is actually one part of that that isn't directly completely linked with co2 emissions because actually what we're looking at is the earth as a whole. And um, I think it was actually mentioned in the talk by Mr. Eisenstein, actually, where he said that the entire earth is like an organism and, you know, it has its own symbiotic sort of nature to it. And actually, for example, what we're doing is looking at soil specifically and just trying to bring the soil back to what it was before synthetic fertilizers were used. And the passion behind that actually comes from a few statistics that comes out of it. So um, synthetic fertilizer is um, so it's synthesized by something called the Harbour-Bosch process. And this process essentially takes nitrogen and it takes hydrogen 
and it combines them together at a very high temperature and pressure to produce ammonia, which is then used as fertilizer. This process alone already consumes about 1.8 to 2% of global energy just to do this one reaction alone. And in addition, uh, since I think it's since post Second World War, um, since that point in time, since these fertilizers have been used, these synthetic fertilizers, this one process, all of the nitrogen content that comes out of this Haber-Bosch process is uh, it's about 48% of everyone's nitrogen content in the world right now. So everyone who's in this talk, for example, 48% of the nitrogen in your body is coming from that one Haber-Bosch process, which is amazing to think of. And it's something that has fueled population growth. Uh, but we've realized obviously that, uh, you know, it's, it's very unsustainable um, because the excess of fertilizer that's used as this magic powder that just makes plants grow, it has a lot of ramifications. It kind of, what it tends to do is it changes the soil microbiota over time. Uh, because it actually turns out that, um, so if we go back to 1918, which is actually the first time when this reaction was actually done by a man called Fritz Haber, who also created the atomic bomb, but we'll just put that to the side. Uh, but it was 1918 when he first did this reaction of nitrogen plus hydrogen goes to ammonia. But before that time, for the 450 million years before that, when plants were around, the only time that had ever been made was by microbiota or by these microorganisms that were in soil. So it's only up until 1918 that we managed to, to synthetically make it. But I think it's very important for us to, to, uh, to move away from this synthetic way of trying to create crop growth and trying to feed the world. Um, and largely because we are actually ruining these microbiota that could have done this all along or can do this naturally all along. And the reason is that when we keep pushing in uh, synthetic ammonia to this bacteria, quite simply what it does is it stops making it itself over time because there's an equilibrium in the soil of the reactions that happen. And when we keep pumping in the product that these microorganisms already made, they over time start to adapt to the point where they don't need to make this anymore because there's already enough of it in the soil. So these microbiota start to readapt and re-engineer themselves where they no longer make ammonia themselves naturally and start to produce less of it. And that goes down the generations of microbiota over time. So now it gets to a point where the soil that farmers use is heavily, heavily reliant on synthetic fertilizers because the microbiota in the soil is no longer making it itself. Is this, is this so a global issue? Sorry, is this a global issue? Are you seeing... Um, what you've just described, are you seeing that it, this in the developing world and in the developed world? Are they like at par or are some countries better off? They've got away with it for a while. Um, so that's a great point. So uh, it, it is a global issue. So fertilizer, I think ammonia itself is, I think the sixth most uh, sort of highly produced chemical annually. And they produce, I think something like 17 million tons per year. Um, so it is a global issue because it's used everywhere around the world. And the thing that is happening, which is actually very promising now, is the technology that we're building is trying to look into the, the soil health by looking at the microbiota. But there are a bunch of schemes also, for example, in the developing, or sorry, the developed economies, where uh, there is a bit more of an understanding uh, for farmers in developed economies where trying to get, create a more sustainable long-term soil health is right. far more beneficial for future long-term productivity and global food security than just looking in the short term. And that's great, and that's wonderful. But the issue that we found is that this unfortunately isn't the case for a lot of developing economies that are actually large agricultural producers. And that's why we focus on India. And that actually led us to going to India for uh, two weeks last March, actually, just before COVID hit. And we actually got to go to these farms, uh, sort of in rural Indian villages, to talk to farmers, to show them our device, and just to discuss what they actually know about what they're doing to their soil with fertilizers. And it's quite unfortunate. A lot of them aren't actually aware of the, um, I guess, the actual tangible impact that they're having on their soil health by using fertilizers. One thing that they are all keen on doing is actually lowering their cost, right, which yeah, right. is a different motivation, but there is actually a lot of motivation in itself to reduce synthetic fertilizer use, even in places like India where climate change isn't really thought about and it's not really a big deal. Mm. Um, and so that's the angle that we're going at at the moment. But uh, the thing that we've realized is that, you know, global CO2 emissions are important and it's important to reduce those. But um, like the, the point that was touched on earlier, it is so, so important to look at other factors that are affecting the world globally mm. as, as its symbiosis. So, you know, what are we doing um, synthetically to the world to pull it away from its natural symbiosis? And what can we do, whether it be reducing CO2 emissions or improving this natural soil microbiota that does these processes that we pay so much money for to do synthetically? What can we do to draw it back to its more natural equilibrium? Mm, got it, got it, that's fantastic. Well, thank you. That was almost a, a lesson for us, a, a class uh, in, in, in soil and the com complexities around uh, what you're doing. But uh, in the grand scheme of things, it appears that you have so many different sub or micro ecosystems and uh, stakeholders and people and nations and policy and regulations and everything sort of uh, in this melting pot that needs to come together. And uh, the work each one of you is doing, I mean, we, we have such limited time on these on these sessions, which is uh, 
uh, sometimes uh, frustrating and we almost need to do it again. I think we may have to do this one more time. We have a bunch of questions. We have a few minutes left. Uh, Rick, do you want to just pick a, a one or two questions and then we'll promise to get you back on because it's unfair. Yeah. It's unfair for us to sort of just 60 minutes trying. Yeah, in fact, I don't think we really have time to do that justice. Okay. Uh, but here's what I'd like to do as a, uh, a rebuttal to that is let's have you all back on for a part two, if you're all open to that. Um, Cause we're just scratching the surface and I think this conversation needs much more airtime. So is everyone here open to a part two? Yeah. Okay. We got thumbs up for everyone. So let's do that. Let's, let's take some of these questions and Denise, if you can help us record these and let's dive deeper in a part two, maybe we can do that even in May or June, probably June. Uh, but let's find out when we can do that with everyone's schedule uh, with our remaining time. What I'd love to do instead is just let's hear from each of you. Just once again, where can people find out about you and your good work? Uh, let's go around briefly and uh, let's end that way. So um, let's start with you, Laura. Um, where can people find out about you and your book and everything that you're up to? Um, yeah, so uh, you can follow me on Instagram. I think that's where I'm most active. That's just uh, Laura Van Ansem. It's on the here. <laughs> um, and then I have, yeah, so my book, this is how it looks. Um, you can find that on Beyonders Foundation um, and or just, yeah, get in contact with me via Instagram as well. Um, and then for Antarctica, I'm fundraising as well for, um, obviously, it's quite expensive to go. Um, and all the support is really appreciated. Mm. So um, I have a GoFundMe. It's also on my Instagram. So it'd be great if some people could check that out. Wonderful. I want to also shout out to your parents who are on this live call with us. Thank yeah. you for the work that you've done uh, to prepare Laura in the way you have and support her in the way you have. So thank you. Thanks, thanks to all the parents. Actually. All the parents, yes. All the parents um, on, on this call. So. For raising your children amazingly. Thank you. We need more of that when our parenting. Yes. Okay, how about you, Beth? Well, you can hear about all this, uh, this next phase of my life. It's called impact production, by the way, if anyone's interested in that, how we better communicate and create impact through digital communication. Um, and you can follow me on Instagram, I guess is the best way right now. Uh, Beth Eden underscore. And that's the same on Twitter as well. Um, or feel free to just add me on LinkedIn. Uh, my website is still in the works, so I will update on those platforms when it is ready. Great. Thank you, Beth. Thanks for having me. Uh, Vivek, how about you? Uh, yes, I guess um, mine is two prongs. So if, the first of all, if anyone's interested in my lab's research here in Cambridge, um, uh, I work at the Reisner Lab, R-E-I-S-N-E-R. And that's the lab in which we do CO2 reduction. So we turn this waste CO2 and turn it back into fuel and try and create a more uh, closed carbon cycle. Uh, and from my um, startup side project, so EcoSense, um, you can find us at eco-sense.info. Uh, and that's our website. Uh, we do have a Twitter, but it's heavily underused since last year because we're still just in the prototype phasing and just running with the backend code and just doing all of the, the tech side of things. Um, but over there, you might be able to see some pictures of uh, our India trip and stuff like that when it finally gets uploaded. Uh, and yeah, and other than that, find me on LinkedIn. I'd be happy to connect with uh, anyone. Wonderful. Thank you. Um, Luna, how about you? Yeah, so um, if anyone's interested in learning more about my organization, um, you can go to effectiveclimateaction.org. Um, we um, run workshops for student to adult groups um, in English, Spanish, Korean, or Japanese. Um, and so you can request a workshop on our website. They're youth-led, obviously. Um, and you can connect with me also on Instagram at luna.abadia, um, as well as LinkedIn. So I'd be happy to talk with anyone and answer any follow-up questions. Thank you so much, Luna. And then last but not least, Flavio Chipchigan. Awesome. Thank you so much. Uh, the easiest way to find me online is simply at flavio.xyz. So that's Flavio, my first name, .xyz. That is my home online. I have links to all of the things that I do from the work at IBM to Global Shapers to the spoken word poem. And I also write my thoughts at notes.flavio.xyz, which will point you to my newsletter. Please subscribe if you are interested. Every Sunday, I put thoughts about research strategy, about innovation, sustainability, and all of, and communicating and all of the things that are in my mind right now. Wonderful. Wonderful. Thank you all so much. Um, also on our uh, website, straighttalk.live, we're highlighting each of you in our speakers page. Uh, and so if you also want to send any of your links to us, we're happy to put that on there as well. 
So we want to help broadcast and spotlight all the great work you're doing. Thank you all again for being on this fantastic and inspiring show. I know I'm walking away very inspired today. We definitely want to do part two. Um, And I just want to thank everyone, all of our audience members uh, for this amazing cause and for being part of our journey this last year. It's meant so much to us to have this passion creation that just came out of intuition and in the moment. I think I and I never had really a plan to start a podcast and it just literally organically arose. And I just trust those moments. So thank you, Af, for being my partner in crime. Pleasure. Pleasure. It's an honor. Thank you so much, everyone. And, um, you know, we're so grateful, so grateful. And you've inspired us all. So we'll see you for part two very soon. Goodbye. Until then, see you all next week. Keep straight talking.